Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 1140 of the Juice Box Podcast. Welcome back to the Cold Wind series. Today, we're going to call our guest Susan. Let's see. Susan is a type one. She's the mom of a type one, a CDE, and a nutritionist. And um, unlike some of the Cold Wind episodes that you've heard so far, she's not here really so much to blow the whistle on the doctors as she is to blow it on the patients. Please don't forget that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. Don't forget to save 40% off of your entire order at CozyEarth.com. All you have to do is use the offer code JUICEBOX at checkout. That's JUICEBOX at checkout to save 40% at CozyEarth.com. You can make a significant impact on the future of diabetes healthcare, treatments, and technology by participating in the T1D Exchange Registry. It starts with just a simple online survey about your life or your loved one's life with type 1. It only takes 15 minutes. T1DExchange.org forward slash juice box. U.S. residents only. You need to be a type 1 yourself or the caregiver of 1. When you fill out the form completely, you are supporting not just people with type 1 diabetes, but the juice box podcast as well. T1DExchange.org slash juice box. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by the insulin pump that my daughter wears, Omnipod. Learn more and get started today with the Omnipod Dash or the Omnipod 5 at my link, omnipod.com slash juicebox. This episode of the Juicebox Podcast is sponsored by AG1. Drink ag1.com slash juicebox. When you use my link and place your first order, you're going to get a welcome kit a year's supply of vitamin D, and five free travel packs. Hello and welcome to the Cold Wind series from the Juice Box podcast. These episodes will feature physicians, nurses, and other professionals who agreed to come on the show anonymously to share what they see in the healthcare profession. I've altered the voices of each guest so that they can remain anonymous and feel comfortable telling us what really goes on at their job. Just listen to how well the voice altering works. My name is Beth, and my oldest child has type 1 diabetes diagnosed in October 2020. My name is Beth, and my oldest child has type 1 diabetes diagnosed in October 2020. If you work in healthcare and have a chilling story to tell about your experiences in the healthcare field, contact me today. I'll get you right on the show. Your story does not need to be specific to diabetes. So we're going to uh, make another anonymous episode today. So we have to first pick your anonymous name. All right, let's go with Susan. You don't want to say what you said before we started recording? (laughs) No, I'll I'll just play nice. Why did you used to have a fake name? Because I used to use it to get into bars when I was underage. (laughs) Okay, Susan. (laughs) I gotcha. So... Let's just start off by telling people, what do you do for a living? So I am a registered dietitian, certified certified diabetes educator working in Canada. Oh, oh, this is going to be so good, isn't it? Um, (laughs) CDE (laughs) and a dietitian. 
it's okay if you don't want to say, but are you willing to tell me what province you're in? I'm in Ontario. Okay. Should I have said yeah. province? Would that have been better? No, province is right. Yeah, I know it's right, but that's not how you guys say it. Well, I say province. All right. Look at you. Trying to be fancy. I got you. So you are a CDE and a dietitian. This is perfect. Yes. Tell me a little bit about what goes into becoming a CDE. Did you do it here in the States or did you do it in Canada? I did it in Canada and I kind of have a bit of a backstory. So I also live with type one. I was diagnosed at 26. My daughter was diagnosed at uh, just about seven, just before her seventh birthday back in 2013, which kind of inspired me to change gears. I was kind of in a phase of my life where I was looking for what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was a bookkeeper and I thought, well, if I have to support her, I might as well figure out how to make some, you know, some other people happy about what I have to say and helpful and value, add value and all that. So I went back to school, became a dietitian with the goal of being a certified diabetes educator because I was kind of doing it on the fly anyway. Mm. How long does it take to become a dietitian? (sighs) Well, it took me a couple extra years. Typically, it's a four-year undergrad plus either a one-year internship at a hospital or a one to two-year master's program. So I had to go back to high school first, take a couple courses to get me qualified to, to apply for the program to become a dietitian. And then um, I did a one-year master's. And then I went through the excruciating process of writing the exams. And then it takes takes another, it depends. It takes about a year if you get a job right out of school in diabetes care, you have to mass anywhere between 800 to 1,000 hours to qualify to write the CDE exam. So if you're not working in diabetes care, then it might take longer for you to really kind of collect all those hours. But I, I came right out of school into diabetes care. So it was pretty quick for me. Well, so this indicates a, a, a sincere desire to do this. I mean, you had to go back to get like high school credits just to get to to the college credits. Yes. Yeah, that's a lot of yes. work. And tell me, you were already a type one when your daughter was yes. diagnosed, right? Right. For about how long? Uh, like 13 years, I'd say. 13 years, type one, you have a daughter, and boom, little diabetes there. You're not just uh, a type one, not just the parent of a type one, but as somebody who said, I want to go do this professionally, and then had to put a great amount of effort into making it happen. Right. Okay, that's a fair statement. Okay, so let's start with what was your experience like with your healthcare prior to your daughter's diagnosis, prior to you being in the business? How would you describe it to somebody looking backwards? Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for the last three years, I've been drinking AG1 every day. No exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day every day, and it makes me feel energized and focused. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. Before I was taking AG1, I would get that brain fog in the middle of the day, and I just couldn't seem to get on top of it. But now, that doesn't happen anymore. By starting my day with AG1, I found focus and a renewed ability to perform at my highest level all day long. DrinkAG1.com slash juicebox. When you use that link, you're supporting the production of the Juicebox podcast. I drink AG1 in the morning, but you could use it as a coffee replacement before a workout 
or in your smoothie. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash juicebox. That's drinkag1.com slash juicebox. Check it out. Today's episode of the Juicebox podcast is sponsored by Omnipod. And before I tell you about Omnipod, the device, I'd like to tell you about Omnipod, the company. I approached Omnipod in 2015 and asked them to buy an ad on a podcast that I hadn't even begun to make yet. Because the podcast didn't have any listeners, all I could promise them was that I was going to try to help people living with type 1 diabetes. And that was enough for Omnipod. They bought their first ad. And I used that money to support myself while I was growing the Juicebox podcast. You might even say that Omnipod is the firm foundation of the Juicebox podcast. And it's actually the firm foundation of how my daughter manages her type 1 diabetes every day. Omnipod.com slash juicebox. Whether you want the Omnipod 5 or the Omnipod Dash, using my link lets Omnipod know what a good decision they made in 2015 and continue to make to this day. Omnipod is easy to use, easy to fill, easy to wear. And I know that because my daughter has been wearing one every day since she was four years old. And she will be 20 this year. There is not enough time in an ad for me to tell you everything that I know about Omnipod, but please take a look. Omnipod.com slash juicebox. I think Omnipod could be a good friend to you, just like it has been to my daughter and my family. Personally, I would say that I didn't prioritize self-care. So I really wasn't a very regimented diabetic. I didn't really do a lot to benefit my own health and welfare. I kind of half-assed my way through things. I wore an insulin pump. I went to all my checkups and doctor's appointments and that sort of thing. But, you know, I went through the whole thing about making up all my blood sugars and telling stories out of school about what I was doing in terms of diet and exercise and that sort of thing. So it, it really wasn't until my daughter's diagnosis that I paid attention to diabetes. So that's a classic story, really. Honestly, yeah, I hear yeah. it from a lot of people. But l- let me make sure I understand, because in fairness to physicians and doctors and nurses and everybody else we're going to be talking about today, you would go in there, lie about the numbers, lie about your diet, and lie about your exercise. Yeah, pretty much. Do you think now using the eye you have now being a CDE, is there any way they believed you? No. <laughs> No, no chance. Back then, did you think they believed you? Yeah, back then I thought I pulled it off pretty well. What were your A1Cs while this was going on? Oh, anywhere from 10 to 13. You were telling them about a person who's doing better than you were doing and then showing them the results of a person who was doing what you were doing. Of course, yeah. But I had no idea. I didn't understand the connection back then. Oh, okay. So you just thought they were like, oh, right on. So, So did you know that that's not the A1C you wanted? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so (laughs) I had all of the information. I knew, you know, I knew how to eat properly. I knew about the potential consequences of diabetes. I started it was it was also a lot for me, a personality conflict, because my nursery school report card says that I don't take authority 
well. Like I don't <laughs> deal with authority figures well, right? So they figured that I'm out probably, when you were three. <laughs> yeah, okay, and okay. I'm probably you know one of the worst people this could happen to because this is a disease where everybody's telling you what you have to do all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Including the disease itself. So. I had a lot of issues with personality conflicts where back in that day, everybody was using fear, you know, scare tactics and, and trying to, to motivate you by fear. So I would walk in and they, I'd have a blood sugar of 12 when they were testing me as I was coming in. And all of a sudden they're like, you're going to die. Right. <laughs> well, that doesn't motivate me. Yeah. It turns me off. And so I went through four or five different endocrinologists before I found one that matched with me and could work with me. And understands kind of like what I need to motivate me and inspire me to do things differently and took the time to educate me and that kind of stuff. So it was it was it was a long period of, uh, you know, many different twists and turns in my journey to kind of get to where I am today. When you realized you were going to offer to be on this episode, did you know you were going to be making both sides of the argument? I usually always do. Okay, because I mean, this is this is fantastic because. I'm assuming that what you tell me later about the professional side of this, it's going to make people harken back to what you said about your time as a type one prior to being, you know, uh, the mother of a child with type one as well. So, so you are, you are in, I hate the wording, but you're non-compliant at that point. Yes. Okay. Did you think you were? Oh, I knew I was. Okay. But you didn't care because fill that blanket. I didn't care because it's kind of like that. It's not going to happen to me mentality. And with, you know, I mean, obviously this has a lot of perspective from what I'm doing now tied into it, but nothing was wrong with me then. I didn't feel anything. Nothing was different for me. I didn't, you know, like when I was diagnosed, yes, of course I had like the frequent urination and I had the intense thirst and I had those kinds of things, which made me go to emerge. I was diagnosed, I think at like 33, which times 18 would be what for U.S. numbers? That, oh, I'm on my phone, so hold Is on. Is that how you want to do it? Because I, I would look on my website because it's easier that way. Hold on a second. Yeah, so I just usually might use my calculator, but that's like 594 okay. milligrams per deciliter. So when I was wheeled in, the triage nurse was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're not being wheeled in here in cardiac arrest. Welcome to diabetes. Nobody in my family has a history of it. Nobody knew anything about it. It was totally new. Um, so Yes, of course, I knew that. I was really annoyed that the first thing that, you know, my first introduction was that way. And then, of course, I had some like 89-year-old physician telling me to eat crackers and drink soda pop, which clearly was not the right approach. And it took me a while to find the team that I kind of clicked with, Mm -hmm. but I still knew that I wasn't doing things properly. I still had all of the information about targets and A1Cs and what that meant. And there was no time and range back then. And it was all like, you have to buy a mini fridge and have it by your pillow so that you can eat at eight o'clock, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, four o'clock. You have to have 60 grams per carbs at meals. You have to this, 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 right. Mm. Very regimented, which was against the grain for me in every possible way. I would go in and say, you know, I went, I actually went on an insulin pump because I was not giving myself any insulin at all. So, so you wanted at least the basal. Yes. Yeah, right? right. And before looping, before all of this, now we're not waiting kind of movement technology and all that kind of stuff. I would actually adjust my basal rates based on my regimented eating pattern. Cause I just got to a point where I was eating the same food every day at the same time. Cause I didn't want to think. So you were jacking your basal up to cover your food. Right. But that's the thing you and came would, up with on your own? Yes. Okay. And I didn't bolus. At all. 
So which is like, do as I say, not as I do. Right. <laughs> totally not the way to come about it. You would get low if you forgot to eat. Right. Okay. But lows didn't scare me. Did that happen? Yeah, I would have lows. Yeah. But they didn't scare me. But this this plan was also just basically keeping you in the tens. Right. Okay. I got it. Got it. Okay. Because I also was like, I'm a carb lover. I have a sweet tooth. I, you know, I'm I'm all about convenience. I hate cooking. So anything that I can buy that's packaged, refined, or full of greasy cheese and pepperoni and carbs was my life. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. And you ride like that 13 years? Uh, yeah, give or take. I mean, I had moments. I got pregnant. When I was pregnant, I was very regimented. My A1Cs were like 6.1, which is a mind blower for most of my endocrinologists who keep telling me to just be pregnant the rest of my life. This also fascinates me when this happens. So you're able to hear a person say, if your A1C is not in the low sixes, high fives, you're going to have an unhealthy pregnancy. It's not good for the body for this A1C to be like this. And so for another person, by the way, a person you've never met before, you're able to do it. But then the minute the baby comes out and it's on you, we go back to like, just put in the basil and we'll go to 10. Of course. And it was same. Like back in that day, I was smoking and drinking and, you know, same. I would quit on a dime. Mm-hmm. Never have another smoke, didn't think about it, didn't crave it, didn't nothing. But as soon as the baby was out, right back to it, which makes even less sense. Oh, it makes I mean, it, it, it tells the entire story. But you are, are going to go this way forever, but your daughter's diagnosed. And tell me what you thought when she was diagnosed. Well, it wasn't an instantaneous thing. So a, a few different things happened when she was diagnosed. First, there was a lot of different kind of pressure because I got like, oh my God, I wouldn't wish this on anyone, but at least it was happening to somebody, it's happening to you because you're the expert and you could fix it. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge weight on me because I wasn't diagnosed in childhood and there's a lot of things that happen in childhood that that didn't happen to me and I had no idea what the hell was going on aside from just the basic fact that everyone has a different experience with diabetes. Mm. So it doesn't matter if we're doing the exact same thing. Her her experience is going to be different than me, right? Also, I'd say that anybody who looks at somebody with a 10 A1C and goes, you're an expert at this is being generous to begin with. I also did not let people in. So nobody knew. Oh, you were alive and had diabetes. So they thought you were an expert at it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right? I got it. Um, so I didn't go into detail with anybody in my life because I just didn't want anybody on my back. Mm-hmm. Right. So. That there was that. The other thing was when she first started, this is when I dove headfirst into everything diabetes. So I joined all the forums, I joined all the groups, I started looking, you know, looking for networks for all this kind of stuff, including Juicebox podcast, right? To make sure that I got all the information so that I knew everything because this is now about my child. This is not me. Right. So then it was kind of learning yes but she was still in those beginning stages in canada you have to be on multiple daily injections for a year before you're considered for pump therapy and of course like she gets diagnosed and i'm like hi where's her pump but you know she's got a bit of the honeymoon phase going on and so they can't really get her on a pump right away all that kind of stuff and then it started to kind of evolve where she would start looking at me like how come i have to do this and you don't oh and, and at first I'm like, well, you know, I have a pump, so it's different. 
or I wear a sensor so it's different. I don't have to poke my fingers all the time because I have a sensor that tells me. Or, so I could get away with it for a little while. But then it got to a point where it was like, I can't fake this anymore. And I now need to be a role model and an example if I want her to live and be able to walk and see and feel and, you know, yeah. have a functioning pancreas well into her golden ages. So, But you were still not concerned about yourself at that point? No. All right. I, I'm still not to be, but you know that some, probably some light therapy would help you figure out why this is, right? Oh, listen, I've been in therapy for years. Okay, it's not. It's. Do you know why you don't? You're not concerned with yourself. Well, I mean, I'm as I'm sure you know, diabetes is very closely related or connected to depression. Mm -hmm. So there's some depression happening. There's also the defiance, there's denial, there's, you know, all the mental health side of diabetes that plays heavily into okay. my my health and wellness journey, right? Gotcha. gotcha, okay. Which was also a really big push or motivator for me to get into diabetes care because I have experienced that for so long and I understand that side of diabetes from a very personal lived experience, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I mean, I do the best I can, and I counsel a heck of a lot better than I apply all of those suggestions, guidelines, you know, techniques, whatever, to myself. Sure. But I'm always going to go above and beyond for people that I care about, my kids being number one. So because of her diagnosis, I got into looping. I built my own pancreas. I tested it out of myself. I then built one for her. We got her into looping. My A1C in a month dropped from 13.9 to 7.3. Mm -hmm. That automated everything and relieved the burden for me so much so that I could then focus on figuring out how to provide her with the same benefit and kind of pushed me into going back to school. Because again, I was kind of at this time in my life where I'm like, this is, you know, bookkeeping is not exciting. This is not what my plan was. And what do I want to be when I grow up? Her diagnosis was kind of like the light bulb, right? Mm -hmm. hmm, okay. When she was diagnosed and I dove in, I was helping people. I was in the CGM in a cloud forum, which is now 60 plus thousand strong, which is the automated pancreas before the AID systems came yeah. available to market and I was, I was in it. I was eyeballs deep and people started to say like, why aren't you doing this in the professional capacity? Because mm. you have, you can come at this from so many different perspectives that is so helpful aside from just the bonus of when I'm talking to somebody, they actually know what I'm talking about. It's not just the healthcare provider that's going by the books they're talking from experience. They really understand when I'm saying I'm having a low, what it means. It's not just, oh, well, go off and have your three dextrose or glucose tablets, right? Yeah, yeah. This is what motivates you to get into it and, and take care of it uh, professionally. Right. Yeah. But still, yes. still, it's, I mean, I'm going to get past it, but it is most impressive to me that you still did it because it would not be uncommon. I mean, parenting is something that happens all around all of us every day long. and there are plenty of adults who make decisions that hurt their kids, yeah, both short-term and long-term. And you seem ripe to be one of those people, but then you weren't. Like, as soon as it came to her, you were like, okay, well, now I'll do it. Oh, I am like a mama bear 
I am the definition of mama bear. Susan, did you just turn your stubbornness in a different direction? <laughs> yes, I did. That's a great way to put oh, it. I know what's going on. Trust me, I'm married. So um, like, I, <laughs> I, I see what's happening. <laughs> but that's really something because you could have doubled down and been like, you could have said, look, I've had this for 20 years. I'm still walking around. She'll be fine. I'm going to keep ignoring this. Yeah, I could have. And, and do you have any um, long-term complications? I have a, I have mild gastroparesis. Oh, I was going to say not neuropathy or gastroparesis is where I was headed. But yeah, no, I have mild neuropathy that's affecting like grip strength in my hands, but mm-hmm. nothing that prevents me from doing anything, uh, you know, normal. Did you notice that that go backwards or stop progressing worse when you got your A1Cs and more control? It's pretty recent, so not sure. Yet. I mean, she's had she's had diabetes now for ten years. So mm-hmm. this issue that I'm having is pretty recent. I'm gonna say it's probably because all the years leading up to her diagnosis that I just sure didn't care. Yeah, and it's showing up now. I'm gonna ask you to guess at something that I don't know how you could actually do this, but I'm still gonna guess anyway. No kids come ever, but you get neuropathy. Do you think that slows you down? And you go, oh, geez, mm. something actually happened. I got to take care of myself. It might. I might have got you. It might. Not as much as it, not as much as my kids being affected by it. Gotcha. And it almost That's wasn't it. the affected part. It was the part where she calls you a hypocrite. That's what got you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 No, no, I saw. That was interesting. Okay. I appreciate you telling me this. This is all incredibly interesting. Now we're going to fast forward and you have okay. the job now and you're doing the job. Right. So. What could your healthcare team have done for you, if anything, all that time you weren't paying attention? It's a good question because, you know, I don't, I can't guarantee that if they did what I'm about to say, that it would have made the difference. I'll tell you what, that's incredibly telling because you're talking about yourself. <laughs> you're, still yeah. not, you're still not sure, but go ahead. What would the best yeah, course I, of action be? I think, you know, if you have to meet people where they're at. So if, if somebody took a minute to make the connection that I'm not afraid of needles, I don't have an adverse, you know, reaction to taking medications. I don't think insulin is poison. I, I, I'm a smart enough person to understand, you know, the science behind things, but nobody took time to explain anything to me. They just barked orders at me. Mm -hmm. And being somebody who doesn't do well with authoritative figures, that is like the complete opposite approach yeah. that would work with me, right? I didn't know why people were changing my doses. I didn't know what carb ratios were. I didn't, like all of these things that were happening to me, I didn't understand. And I mean, the mental health aspect of diabetes back then was non-existent. Okay. Nobody nobody made that connection. I was in denial. I just didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want it. I didn't want to have to do all this extra stuff. I hated that, that it was interrupting my day. I didn't like that, you know, like if I wanted to eat because I was hungry, I couldn't just eat. I, I didn't like that I couldn't go stay over at my friend's house and not have to think about it. I didn't like that I couldn't go out for a night of drinking and, you know, be afraid that I wasn't going to wake up the next day. Yeah. So I almost dared it to happen. Because Which, is that the depression? I think that's yeah, it's the depression, I think, right? Yeah. And it and it's just it just didn't 
I don't know how to explain it. And this is part of where my issue is that I haven't been able to kind of weed through a hundred percent, but it's kind of like, I don't know whether it's worth it. Like what's so exciting about life that really wants, that really makes me want to put all this extra effort in. And this is back then, right? Cause I didn't have kids and I wasn't married and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't, I was living a good life. I was fine. I had, I had a house, I had a car, I had, I was traveling, whatever, but I didn't really have anything super exciting to, to do all this extra work for. Right. Are the mundane parts of life just difficult when you're depressed? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, they're yeah. difficult when you're not depressed. So I'm trying to imagine if there was a voice in your head, not literally a voice, but, but a feeling that is just like, oh, why are we doing all this? Then yeah. it makes those yeah. days harder. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, back then, because that wasn't part of care, I mean, now we're still struggling up here to get mental health support as part of the care team, the circle of care. Mm-hmm. There aren't enough mental health professionals that are knowledgeable about especially type 1 diabetes and you know even just you know regular mental health support people who are qualified to provide mental health care if you don't really understand the world of diabetes it's almost pointless makes it work. right yeah it's more difficult can i ask you were you yeah. depressed prior to your diabetes diagnosis i don't think i was depressed but i don't know necessarily that i was happy Okay. Like I had, I had some, you know, traumatic events happen in my childhood, you know, nothing majorly serious, but no, you just, had to live in Boston. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm just, teasing. I had to live in Boston. I'm just teasing. And, you know, I mean, part of that was, was real, right? Like mm. the, the, everybody says everybody in Canada is so nice. Right. Mm. And it's, it's actually true. Like I got bullied when I was young in Boston really bad and it, it set me up for, you know, expectations unrealistic expectations of relationships and it you know like it it impacted everything that happened after the fact when i came to canada i was expecting everybody to be the same and i was the asshole right so i came and i was like trying to take on this bully mentality and i'm not going to let that happen to me again and i'm going to be the one that's going to and then i got bullied like almost the opposite way where nobody wanted to have anything to do with me rightfully so yeah so then it was really hard to make friends and so all that kind of stuff was hard. And then I was diagnosed um, here in Canada. I'm trying to think of, you know, it was kind of during this whole time where, so I was going out a lot younger than like I was 16 and I was going out and I was partying and drinking and doing all this kind of stuff. And I had an older boyfriend. And so I was well into that kind of phase of my life when I was diagnosed Mm. and I was going to work and people thought I was hungover because my blood sugars were so high that I was literally falling asleep. Yeah. yeah. But they don't know anything about diabetes either. So you were on the wrong path when the diabetes came. Right. And then all of a sudden now I like I moved out of my house when I was 16. So I had been independent and doing my thing for quite a while by the time I was 26 and getting diagnosed I had gestational diabetes when I was pregnant, but then it went away. And almost five years to the day was my diagnosis date for type one. So it came back with a vengeance. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you're going to come into my life and disrupt my entire program Mm -hmm. and take away or potentially or threaten to take away the only things left that that bring me joy. I got you. Right. Which is food, going out, having a good time, whatever. Yeah. 
No, I hear it. And you didn't like your job and you already kind of had that feeling like, I don't know if this is all worth it to begin. It's a lot of effort to be alive kind of feeling. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was, I wouldn't say that I was suicidal because I wouldn't try anything, but it was just kind of like, why bother? Like, just let it, whatever's going to happen, happen. Well, listen, I want to be fair. I don't think anybody, whether or not they've been depressed, are depressed or aren't depressed, hasn't on, you know, the end of a long day gone like, what am I doing? This just happens over and over again. Like, you know what I mean? Like, sure. it, like, yeah, we're, we're, you know, I, my son was out of college for six months when he called me and said, like, what do people do after work? <laughs> like what is that? And, and you're laughing because it's funny, but I was sad. I was like, oh, he just figured out that life's not like a 24 hour party. He just figured it out yeah. just now. I'm laughing because I had a similar conversation. I have a son who's 30. Mm -hmm. And um, when he was graduating school, I kept saying to him, like, come home, relax, enjoy travel. Like, don't just think you're going to get to sit on your butt, but wait for the job that you want that's gonna you know either open doors for you or that's gonna bring you some kind of happiness or make you feel rewarded or whatever right. because you go rushing into a job just to make a couple extra bucks you are going to hate life so much sooner because mm. you will find very quickly that it gets very repetitive right uh, and i just love that even you, if you, <laughs> you qualified as you're gonna hate it eventually but now it's gonna happen sooner <laughs> yeah right because even if you have an awesome job, sometimes you just want to like lay around for an extra hour or you just want to yeah. go on a trip or you just want to like, there's all this extra stuff. It's kind of like diabetes, but not as intense because you got to plan ahead and you got to do all of this extra steps to just make things happen. Right. Yeah. So he just recently came back to me as well and said, like, is this it? Is this life? Mm -hmm. Like I just get up, I go to work, I do my job, I come home, go to the gym, I have my dinner, go to bed, I get up. I go to work, I do my job. I'm like, yep, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, that's that's why I don't understand people who don't like sports. I'm like, what do they do? Like in their like yeah. down. To, that's why people are like I read. I'm like, okay, all right. So like yeah, you know like yeah. but yeah, people have to have hobbies. They have to have things to do. You know, I told him I was like to be perfectly honest. That feeling once you have a family, if you care about your family even a little bit, that feeling completely goes away because you don't even have time to have that feeling any longer. That's like, right. Now That's you're just right. busy yeah. all the time. You're busy while you're sleeping. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But so, okay. Did you ask him if he was depressed when he came back to you and said that? We've had conversations about it. I don't know if I asked him at that point, but, you know, he's since had some issues with anxiety and stuff like that. So it could have been there. Mm -hmm. Okay. But we haven't had like a, like a direct conversation about that yet. Are there any autoimmune issues with your kids? Not that we know of. And they've all been for the predetermination testing and that kind of stuff. And she was the one that came back with two of the four markers. And then a year after that, she was diagnosed. You ever have your thyroid checked or his, your 30-year-old? My, I do have, I'm on medications for thyroid. I actually had thyroid cancer. So I had half my thyroid removed. Okay. Where do you keep your TSH? I don't even know. Yeah. I So anxiety, depression, like uh, mood stuff can come with like an unbalanced thyroid situation too. Yeah. Yeah. So he worth. did have his thyroid checked out. And I do remember looking at his blood work and it was within normal ranges because of the whole anxiety thing. He was freaking out. I think he just kind of has like a doom and gloom syndrome where he just is afraid of death. And then he spirals. Yeah. I would just look at the TSH because anything over two with symptoms, I think needs medication. 
Okay. That's well, all. that's a good tip. Yeah, yeah. Take that as a, and that's not a thing any doctor in Canada is going to tell you. And if you're worried about it, by the time they get to you, it'll be nine months from now anyway. So, yeah, hey, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that's that. That's if you're lucky. Mm, let's talk about that. Do we all really want socialized medicine? Is it great? I think there's benefits of both. I think it really depends on who you are. I don't know. It really depends. You have to be a huge advocate. You have to be confident. You have to have a big mouth to really be able to get the best out of the healthcare system here in Canada. Why? If you otherwise, you'll be forgotten. Okay. You'll be pushed to the side. You'll be forgotten. Because it deals with the way it works intrinsically is it deals with people who are dying and then a person who's slightly better off than them. And and by the time they get down to somebody who's like, for example, like my iron's low, that's a year, right? Like, yeah, yeah, nobody's rushing to help you if I need a ferritin infusion. Or I think my PSH might be a little high and that might be why I'm anxious. You're not getting somebody to whip you up and bring you in real quick. No, I mean, first of all, nobody has that even that level of education. Nobody knows what to ask. Nobody knows like how to talk to healthcare workers. They just the the majority of Canadians are too nice. They just sit and wait, and they show up when they're told, and they do they take meds that they're told, and they don't ask any questions, and they go along their merry way. Right? Okay. There's the, the I would say the small group of people like me who don't just take whatever answer they're given or don't just take whatever doctor they're given. It's a little bit more difficult now, especially from COVID because like our healthcare professionals are dropping like flies. They're not getting paid enough. They're all quitting. It's the same with teachers up here. Teachers are like running, jumping ship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it makes it that much more difficult to get in to see anybody like I have a cousin who's been dealing with gastro issues for months and she's wasting away, like literally wasting away. I think she's lost about 80 pounds and she didn't have a lot to lose to begin with. Celiac maybe, or like, what do you mean? Like she can't take nutrients anymore. She just can't keep food down. So I've suggested that she's apparently been tested for that. She's been tested for a myriad of other things. She's had scopes done. She's had all kinds of stuff done. They can't seem to diagnose her. She can't get in for eight months. No, I wasn't kidding about that. I know Canadians. I know it takes about nine months if you're not like literally dropping dead right now to see a doctor. Yeah, yeah. she's going to die of malnutrition before she gets the testing. Well, like, no, I mean, it just that's not make fair, Susan. Sense. Once she's about to die, they'll see her immediately. Yes, yeah. this is true. Yeah, that's all fine. Don't worry. It'll be fine. No, this is yeah. this is exactly what I'm talking about. And then you're saying then the level of care suffers too because people who know what they're doing are leaving the industry as well. That's right. Okay. That's right. Now, now on the flip side, like for someone like me who has a team, who has regular appointments, who is already in the system, who has a chronic life-threatening disease, whatever, like I get priority. So it works out okay. And it saves me a ton of money because I'm going to the doctor or a specialist or doing this or that and the other thing like all the time, right? Mm-hmm. If you are just somebody who kind of floats through life and you're doing pretty good most of the time and you don't really have to go to a doctor until like something comes up or, you know, you need something signed off for work or whatever, that would be ideal. And there's actually a lot of Torontonians who are looking into private medical care where it is like it mirrors what, what the system is in the U.S. A lot of people you are bringing show that up. up yeah. And you pay for whatever you want and you get in within the hour. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, listen, the, the same goes for here. The better your insurance is, the more capable you are of paying, the quicker you're seen. But right. But the truth is that a long wait in America might be 30 days, you know, six weeks to get yeah. a doctor's appointment. And if yeah. you were really in trouble and you just said, hey, I can't wait that long, they'll slip you in somewhere. Yeah. But those doctors are also being paid. So every time they bring someone in, it's a cha-ching. So that they're, yep. you know, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying. So you either go up to a situation where it takes you forever to be seen. And then once you're seen, if it's something they understand, like diabetes, then maybe it's not so bad if you have a good team. But if it's not right. something they understand, then you have to advocate for yourself and say, like, you know, this isn't right, or I need my levels to be here, or you're not addressing my symptoms, like that kind of stuff. And by the way, I've, I'm now talking with Canadian and U.S. people in this you know, in this anonymous setting, no one's saying anything different. Like, yeah. you know, I get like, I go to the emergency room. Have you ever been to the emergency room as a type one? I have. And did they know anything about diabetes? Uh, I've been to, I've been to the hospital for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And the, so when I was pregnant, I was on pumps. They took my pump away. They wouldn't give it back after birth. They had me on a drip. One of the nurses even came in and asked me when I finally did get it back, what is that? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, like I've been on a drip getting insulin and you're in healthcare. Like, how do you not even know what it is? Maybe you don't know how it works, but how do you not even know what it is or yeah. that it's a possibility for me in terms of managing my diabetes? But anyways, I had to get my obstetrician to actually write a, a note to get the nurses to allow me to have my pump back. And this was back, you know, like 17 years ago. but much better now right i've had surgeries since then where i keep my pump on the entire time because they realize you know better what to do than we do so you just move it out of the way of the surgery and make sure that you're doing certain things prior to to keep you safe whatever mm -hmm. which is a great advancement but i also have had an experience where i went to the er because I just kind of, I don't know, I, I was panicking. I, I wasn't sure about my heart health. I kind of felt like my chest was really tight and I just wanted to play safe. And it turns out that I was in DKA. Mm. So they, they, I knew I had ketones and stuff like that, but they tested me and I was moved to an inner waiting room. Like you go in, you get triaged, you're in a waiting room. And then depending on the severity of your case, you get moved to another waiting room inside. And I was sitting in that room with another girl who was like all balled up in her chair with blankets and everything. And the doctor came in and went straight to her thinking it was me. Meanwhile, I was just sitting there watching TV, like looked complete. Like I looked like I had brought her there. Uh -huh. I was just waiting with her. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when he called, when he went up to her and said my name, I'm like, no, no, that's me. And he looked over at me and he was like, you're in DK. So he knew what it was, but he was he was mystified based on what he knew about it, that I was coherent, that I was just sitting there like any regular Tuesday watching TV, waiting to be seen, that I wasn't throwing up, that I wasn't, you know, near death. Well, now that you do this job now, so you're a CD in a private practice or in a hospital setting? Private practice, hospital setting, clinics, family health teams, you name it. All over I'm, the place. I'm in it. Okay. What are you not doing that you should be doing? Where are people being... Where are people falling short? Where are the cracks? What could happen that isn't happening? Tell me why those things are happening. I would say, number one, mental health. There's such a huge gap in mental health care. 
I have so many patients that I spend so much extra time with in my calls on purpose that I can't, I I say I can't help. They claim that I am very helpful and they actually refuse to be switched to a different educator because they feel that I'm helpful. Mm -hmm. However, from my perspective, they're still coming back with blood sugars in the 20s constantly. They're still coming back with, you know, A1Cs above 10. They're still coming back with, I haven't taken my insulin for the last three days. I couldn't get to the pharmacy. I haven't checked my blood sugars. Like today, I had a patient. I haven't checked my blood sugars in six months. Okay. Her brother's in palliative care. Her, her daughter is dealing with spina bifida. She's a caregiver for both of them. She's super stressed out at work. So she just gave up on herself. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't help them. Right. I can talk to them and I can inform them and I can educate them. And that's what I try to do. And I try to encourage them to be kind to themselves and to understand, you know, how closely connected depression is with diabetes and how that's a vicious cycle and all of that. But I feel like I can't help them because they're still coming back to me at the next checkup in the same situation. So do you know why they're not taking your advice? I think it's a, a myriad of different reasons. I think cost is a major barrier because, you know, there there are many different programs that are available, but each of them have such restrictive criteria that there's usually always something that prevents people from getting access, right? right? So uh, uh, they also don't realize that they can ask for different things. So if an endo prescribes a specific insulin, like Traceba, for example, long-acting basal insulin, not all insurance companies will will cover that. So then they end up paying four hundred dollars out of pocket for you know a month's supply when they could be asked to be switched over to Jo or Basaglar or something else. Mm-hmm. And the doctor doesn't help with that. The doctor just writes down the first name that occurs to them. If your insurance doesn't cover it, then those people have no way of knowing that. They think, oh, this is the insulin I need now. I have to pay the four hundred dollars. Well, that's right. Right. And some doctors are good. Some doctors will switch them up, but not all of them do. Whose fault is that? Well, for sure, I would say it's the healthcare professional's fault. Okay. Because there should be options. There should always be options. It's not that they have to go into major detail, but there should be always options presented. Hey, I'm prescribing you Traceba. If your insurance doesn't cover it, let me know. I'll find another one that they do. Yeah. Okay. Or even just saying, what kind of coverage do you have before you even mention Traceba? Maybe they might even know based on that. We as healthcare professionals are pretty well-versed for what's available under which programs, whether it's government funding, whether it's disability, whether it's employee provider, you know, insurance, whatever. We all have a pretty good idea. So why doesn't it happen? Lazy? Laziness. It could be because they have, you know, like um, a good relationship with the big pharma rep and they want to push that product because they get more perks or whatever, you know, there's... That's not out of the question to be true. Still, no. still in 2023. Oh, you're in Canada, though. Do you not have laws against that kind of stuff? Yes, but it's I don't know that it would be necessarily on purpose or intentional, mm-hmm. but it's also like, OK, our endos spend maybe 10 minutes with each patient, which is why education programs are a big deal, because we spend a minimum of a half an hour with every patient, sometimes an hour, depending, right? Right. right. So endos are not educating. They're not asking a lot of questions outside of what have your blood sugars been and how often are you taking or how much are you taking of your medications? 
a lot of that information comes from us, the educators, because we will see them first, update their notes, and then the the, the endos just go based on what we've done mm-hmm. to save them that time, right? So I think a lot of it is just time constricted. We have so many people, like through COVID, our type 1 in just this region where I'm at has tripled type 1 diagnosis over the over the years since COVID has happened. So I think that, you know, the amount of patients that are now being recognized, diagnosed, and screened, and all that kind of stuff, that has literally saturated the amount of professionals that we have to properly support these people has caused a lot of the problem because there's just no time. Is this why the podcast is popular, do you think? Because yes. people just can't get this information anywhere else. Yes. That's simple. I also think that there are, you know, a number, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's a number of educators that are in the field that are not type one or that are not, you know, somebody living with diabetes and they don't necessarily have anybody living with diabetes. They just came in learning from what they got at school, mm-hmm. which is two weeks out of a four year program that talks about diabetes. So I can take a four year program and then when I come out say, oh, I want to be in diabetes and I still only had two weeks of education for it. Yep. Oh, well, that's a valuable decision. Uh, okay. Yep. Now, it's up to the clinic to determine where you can go and what you can do, right? Mm-hmm. So when I came out of school, I joined a clinic that was a national diabetes and endocrinology team across Canada. And I had to start off doing diet consultations, right? Basic healthy eating. I had to do workshops, which were already scripted and the, the slides were already done. And then I would go and I'd have to do like a core competencies test to make sure that I could get that level of care. I had to shadow people. So I would hear what they were telling and what they were doing. And I had to be shadowed and all that kind of stuff. Then there's like different levels. So there's like four or five different levels that I worked through that got me to seeing patients on pumps, for example. Right. So I went from like almost pre-diabetes education to now complex pump patients. Right. How long did it take you to get through that process? For me, it was fast-tracked because I have, you know, so much lived experience. Yeah, okay. So I would say probably on average anywhere from one to two years, dependent on how quickly somebody picks up, what they know about it before they come in, and how motivated they are to be moving up. So bare bare bones, we're suffering from undereducated clinicians or under-motivated or... Yeah, I guess that's it, right? They're either, they don't care, and it's a job to them, right? They're going to go do the thing they're supposed to do. You don't do well, it doesn't matter to them. They did the thing they were supposed to do today. Um, Or they just don't even know well enough to explain it to you. So they're basically reading to you from the first two pages of a manual. And that's, of course, not going to help anybody get anywhere. But there are people like you who understand it, like intrinsically, even though you did not apply it to your own life, you still understand it. And like you said earlier, like you were online explaining it to people, everyone found your way of explanation valuable. You brought that to a professional life. So you're giving people that amount of effort. Is it helping them? I mean, the feedback that I get, I have to say, yes. It's good. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean that they're going to come back with improved time and range. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden they're going to change everything the way that I'm recommending based on the guidelines. Okay. But they feel heard. It's a good step. And they feel, yes, and they feel informed and they don't feel judged or attacked. So, so it, 
opens them up to the possibility that over the next six months, over the next year, we can actually start to make some progress. Yeah, see, you're making my argument that you haven't heard yet because it's just right now just Jenny and I recording with each other, but you're you're making my argument, which is heart, heartening to me. My My argument is there are a myriad of implications about people taking care of their health. And not everybody is going to do a good job. Not everybody's going to care. Not everybody's going to have the bandwidth to handle it. There's going to be a ton of reasons why somebody might not make out well. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't give them all of the information in a way they can digest so that hopefully they put it into practice. That's the goal, yes, right? That's also a challenge, though, because think about in the hundreds of podcasts that you've done, think mm -hmm. about how much information that potentially is. The truth of it is, it's timing and amount. It's understanding how insulin works. It's understanding the impacts of foods. Like that's the foundational information. That's right. If you have that foundational information, that should be enough for you to see impacts and then be an adult, make a decision if that's something you want to do for yourself or not. That's what I think we owe people is a chance. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Okay. But we're not even offering some people a chance. Is that fair? It, I think it's fair. It's just so convoluted because then you've got all the socioeconomic and psychosocial aspects, right? So I could be providing care to three different patients, right? One of them, I'm providing the same, like what you just kind of threw in that nice little basket, right? I can give them each the same exact basket, right? If I have adult A, who, okay, put on your big boy pants and let's get going because here's the foundation of information you need to be able to maintain a healthy lifestyle and improve your blood sugars and your overall health and well-being. He's going to go home and be like, I'm on it. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have heart problems. I don't want to lose my eyesight. I don't want to feel like crap, whatever. He's going to go home and he's going to do it. He's going to come back and his blood sugars are going to be perfect, right? Mm -hmm. Which we all know that doesn't exist, but just for sake of argument. Yeah. Then I go to patient number two right? Wants to do everything they can, doesn't have coverage, doesn't have an education to understand how, you know, certain things kind of work together, might, can, you know, might be able to do a couple of things, but just, you know, from access, you know, like maybe they can't afford to buy healthy foods. They know how to do it. They want to do it, but they can't afford it. So like different things like that based on socioeconomic perspective. But then you got adult three who gets it, could do it, has the money for it, but then Just the, men the mental health support is gone. So they don't care. They don't want to think about it. It's too much of a burden. They're not, they're not connecting how, you know, like one of the big aha moments for me was years ago before I transitioned into this whole thing. I think I had my son. I hadn't yet had my kid, my daughters. I'm not sure. I can't remember, but I was in a uh, in like a phase where I was just really easily agitated. I was I was exploding on people instantaneously like with very little prodding or poking or whatever. Yeah. And I went in and I was saying to her like I'm just pissed off all the time and I don't really know why but I'm just sick of everything and I'm so pissed off and I just want everybody to leave me alone. And she said to me like your blood sugars are higher. We've had this conversation so many times. I know where you're at. I know how you feel. But do you know that when blood sugars are higher for extended periods, it actually impacts your level of patience? Mm. It makes you foggy and, and irritable. And, and by the way, on top of that, you have a, a thyroid issue, which could also impact that. So, so yeah. when, when she says that to you, 
you're not the right person to tell it to. That's the problem with you being an adult, not having somebody in charge of you at that moment, because now I'm putting the person who's already like medically irritated in charge of making themselves not that way. Well, yes, yeah. but at the same time, I was like, what? I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Nobody okay. told me that. No one ever even told you that that could be an implication on, on how, because that's the thing I say on the podcast all the time is people at, at the very least dis- deserve to be themselves. Like, like yes. the, you know, the person they would be if they didn't, if their pancreas didn't stop working and their blood sugar didn't get high and they didn't become irritable and et cetera. Like you at least deserve to be yourself. Yes. I think a basic necessity of this, how else can you even make a good decision? You know, it's interesting is like, it feels like what you said was there are people who are either, you know, told, look, here's what could happen. And they say, well, that's not happening now. So I don't really have to worry about it. Or there are people who it happens to who then go, oh, it's too late. There's nothing I can do about it anyway. Yeah. That's depressing. Or you get the exact opposite in both situations where they're so scared that they'll never eat another cupcake. Yep. Or anything. I've heard of people who who have trouble bringing themselves to eating, like for anything. Uh, yeah. 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 They, they, I've had patients who have developed eating disorders. They're afraid of carbohydrates. I've had, I've had the spectrum, right? I think like kind of dialing back to your earlier point. Yes. Everybody deserves a basic foundation of information, that little basket, right? Of healthy eating, exercise, whatever. That's fine. But there are so many intricacies within all of that that don't often get touched upon and and a lot of times come up by mistake because it's like walking a tightrope, right? How much information do you give somebody? How much are they going to be able to digest and apply? What are they most focused on? Like, are you talking to somebody about exercise and activity who is a fitness junkie that really wants to do all of that? Or are you wasting all this time talking about it, making somebody feel worse about themselves because... You know, they know how important it is, but they just can't figure it out. They don't want to do it or whatever, right? right? So for me, like, that's really kind of laser focusing in on the details. When I got that information about how higher blood sugars impacts patients' levels, I can't ever necessarily see that coming out in the general initial assessment sessions that are structured that I've been privy to. Mm-hmm. So when you're first starting out in diabetes care and you're learning from people, it is that. Let's talk about a balanced plate. Let's talk about, you know, the foods that impact blood sugars the most. We don't really get into the detail of simple versus complex carbs because that's too much. But we kind of talk about vegetables, meats, and or plant-based proteins and, you know, carbs, right? So sugary foods, breads, rices, whatever. That's how we sort of present it, right? Mm -hmm. And then we talk about medications. They all kind of do different things. If you're type 2 diabetes, you have all these different kinds. If you're type 1, you're basically on insulin, and this is what the two different insulins do, and here's how they work, and blah, blah, blah. So they walk away. They get it. They might get some information about some of the known complications just so they're not shocked or surprised by hearing it from somebody else when they tell them they have type 1 or whatever. But understanding how it's all connected like I remember too, I didn't, I think it was your podcast with Jenny that flew me into the A1C being based on evidence of retinopathy. <laughs> oh, that's something that you heard in that last handful of years where you're like, oh, I don't know that. I had no idea. Yeah. Right. I'm like, oh, okay. So, cause I was just like A1C, that's just all I've ever heard since I was diagnosed. Right. Mm-hmm. But I had no idea that the whole reason or the establishment of the A1C was based on the chances or the risk of developing retinopathy. Did you find the podcast prior to your professional change or after before before okay yeah. okay 
And I think, you know, to answer the question that you kind of started, we went to the left turn, but your podcasts for people living with type one that can't access healthcare the way they want to, or as quickly as they need to, comes in handy because there's the lived experience aspect of it. And it's not all just by the book, Mm -hmm. right? It's about how do you really live life with type one in the best way? How, like all the little tips and tricks and all the real stuff about life with type one, not just what does your lab work say? What does the science book say? What do the guidelines say? What am I allowed to tell you? Right. Yeah. So that's where I think the biggest benefit is. And there are people who will trip on your podcast and learn about how to bolus for fats and proteins that have like, has never been discussed with me mm. in 26 plus years of living with type one. Yeah. No, I know. It's interesting. Somebody just put a post up on the Facebook group today and they were like, hey, you know, how many carbs do you think this is? It was three deep fried chicken tenders, like like chicken strips with about 25 or 30 French fries, three packets of ketchup. And people jump in to guess the carbs. And it's fascinating how few of them under even understand that the chicken has carbs in it because it's got breading on it or that the, that the three packets of ketchup are like 10 carbs. Like total. Yeah. yeah. People are like, I don't know, this is like 30. I'm like 30. There's 65 carbs here at a minimum. And look out for the fat rise coming 60 to 90 minutes after you start eating. And people are yeah. like, what? <laughs> They're all out there making decisions for themselves. Now, the people who have been around the podcast longer, I was also heartened by how many people that fell into the 60 to 70 carb range when they were making the guess. But a lot of people are like, is this 30? 35 i'm like the fries are 30 like what are we oh boy and 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 yeah. all the grease and the deep fry is going to slow your digestion down like you, you don't you don't know that do you okay all right no. so, you, so you explain it there and now you realize you've explained it for a couple of thousand people who the algorithm was nice enough to deliver this to today who are in the face it's not even as easy as like oh well the people are in the group they're going to get the information yeah everything is stacked against you <laughs> like, like yeah down to the algorithm not feeding you the the information in the group you were in to try to find the information out to begin with like if i put you in charge i'm doing this with everybody when i'm talking to them yep what fixes this as best as it can be fixed am i wrong saying give people foundational information hopefully they'll find their way to the rest of it is there more different what do you think I think that's one approach, and that is kind of the approach that is mostly followed here. It's just so lackluster because you would have three podcasts, right? So if we didn't have all this extra information to learn and to know and to grow and to understand, like, how many podcasts do you have in total now? And think about how that reflects back on what people are getting when they walk into that foundational understanding appointment. Yeah, but in fairness, like, there's over a thousand episodes of the podcast, but the people who are really just looking for management stuff, they only need the, no, they need the de- defining stuff. So they understand the terms. They, they need the pro tip series, maybe the fat and protein stuff, a little bit about how to change the math for their settings after that. Like, I mean, that's enough to get you into a six, a one C you don't have to understand the whole thing to live healthy. Like, but I don't know what's happening that they never go out in the world and look for more. Is it because they're, they think that what they're being told is all there is or do you think it's because they're a little like uh out of sight out of mind or i don't care that much or how much of that do you think's involved too 
I think it's a bit of everything. I think for most people, they're so overwhelmed by the diagnosis that they take what they're told and they think that's all there is. Okay. I think they're scared to do anything else. The, The majority of people that I talk to that, you know, they saw me three months ago and they, they increase their, their ICR when they strengthen their ICR at dinner, you know, by one point or whatever, they haven't done anything since. And I'm like, we had this conversation. I I explained like this is me thinking in my head, right? Like we had this conversation. I explained to you how you can safely adjust on your own in between appointments, and you haven't done anything, and your blood sugars are still 12, 13, 14 after dinner. Right. So what's missing? When I decided to make these episodes, I think in my head I thought we'll make the people anonymous because they'll be talking about the place they work, but you're the first one that's like actually talking to the patients. And I still want you to be anonymous because it allows you to feel more free to just say, hey, this is what you this is what I see you guys doing. And this is why it's hurting you. Yeah. So it's an interesting perspective because everybody's trying to be polite when you talk to people, generally speaking, like nobody wants to come out and say, like I had somebody in one of the other episodes just, I think, said something about like, look, some people just don't have the brain power for this. That too. And I was like, wow, that is not a thing somebody would have said out loud if they thought anybody knew who they were. So, you know, so anywhere between like your ability to understand what's happening to someone explaining it to you. Listen, I can tell you right now, I have the ability to understand it. No one explained it to me. And it took me years to figure it out. Yeah. And I may have only figured it out because I was writing a blog that what I thought was my blog's not helping enough people just sharing, you know, because what most of blogging was back then was like, this is what's happening to me. Is this happening to you? And people are like, oh, my God, it does happen to me. And then people are like, yeah, I love that blog. But that didn't help anybody. <laughs> you, you know what it is, like, right? Like, everybody's yeah, so like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I was like, well, let's help people. And so once I started figuring it out for Arden, that was the first person I was trying to help. Arden's the first person I was trying to help. And so course, I yeah. figured out what to do. And then I wrote about it a little bit. And then people were like, that helped me too. And I was like, oh, that dispels the rumor that everybody's diabetes is super different from each other. It's like, they're different. You know, your variables are a little different. But again, the foundational basics of it are are the same and that's where i'm coming from because i've i've ended up saying this in a couple of different episodes but i'll say it here as well the thing i had to learn to do more than anything else was to communicate one way with somebody like the person i'm talking to right now cannot talk back to me and i don't know any of their details any of their variables i don't know if their iq is 80 or if it's 130 i don't know if they went to college or grad school or couldn't get out of high school like I don't know anything like that about about anybody. What I did was I endeavored to communicate in a way where everybody would be comfortable in this conversation and that nobody would feel talked down to and or would feel like this was so elementary that they shouldn't be listening to it. And so to me, it's about communication. To me, that's what it is. Like, I don't think there's a person with type 1 diabetes that you couldn't put me into a room with that I couldn't explain at least enough that they could keep their A1C in the sixes. I think I can do that. I know you could do that. Whether it happens or not is the different story, right? But if I can do it, then why can't a nurse practitioner do it? Or a doctor or a CDE or an endo? I mean, I'm a good communicator, but Jesus, like, you don't have to be that good of a communicator to get this these points across, do you? Or am I, listen, let me be serious. Am I just way better at it than most of the people you meet? I think so. That's depressing. Like, 
Seriously. And, and, and that's coming from somebody who has often been told, oh my God, the way you said that just made all the difference. Yeah. So you've heard that from people. Yes. And I still don't think that I am doing as much good in this world as you. Well, that's nice of you to say, but it's upsetting. So is this a situation where I'm making an entire series of episodes that at the end, I'm going to realize I'm unfairly asking something of people they can't do. And I don't mean the patients. I mean, the, the providers. I think it also has to, like it, so many things pop into my head. I think, you know, from a provider standpoint, right, it's time. How much time do they have? How many versus how many, like supply and demand, right? Mm-hmm. How much time do they have versus how many patients they have to see? There's no way they are ever, ever, ever in the way, in the model of care right now, ever going to be able to do much more than say, okay, let's review your blood sugars. Let's review what you're doing with your medications here's the different medication you have, maybe answer one question. Yeah, I don't know why like, nobody listens to me about the math. There should be mass appointments. Like, well, we have like the education centers that we have. Many of them are now doing group programs and have been for a long time because of that. They're trying to get as many people together to do these programs as they can. But then at the same time, like what's frustrating for me is one of the clinics that I work for, the National Clinic, that I do do workshops and teach workshops for and stuff. And I actually introduced an entire type one specific program. All of the stuff that I was doing, I was getting pushback because, I mean, first of all, it was kind of like some of the stuff was a little bit not grade six reading level, which is the standard. But in my opinion, like if you have type one diabetes and you're signing up for something like this, you have enough of a foundation that you don't need it to be grade six anymore. Yeah, you're asking. By virtue of asking should indicate you have a higher level of competency. Right. So right. then it was kind of like I was spending all this time and I was doing all this work and I was developing all these workshops and I got good feedback, but I don't really feel like I was telling the people what I wanted to tell them. Like I wanted to come at it from a perspective of the kinds of things that you're doing, the conversations that you're having. Mm-hmm. But then it was like I had to dial it back to kindergarten again. And people, I don't feel like they they take it and apply it the same way that they might if they were listening to like real conversations that you're having in podcasts. Yeah. Right. Jenny and I did a, a live event recently and it was, you know, when it first happened, the people who invited us said like, you know, you can come and talk for an hour. I'm like, I'm not flying anywhere to talk to anybody for an hour. I was like, it's a day. And she's like, well, nobody will sit for a day. And I was like, no, they will. I was like, they absolutely will. So we filled a room with people and Jenny and I spoke for two solid hours before lunch and then everyone out to lunch. And I know the people who organized were like, oh, after they eat, they're going to take off. And everyone came back in and then we spoke for three more hours. And there was a lot of Q&A in there in that three hours, but a lot of just conversational stuff. Everybody stayed till the last second. They were thrilled. And even like we got a letter from somebody who just said like on the way home, my blood sugars were better. Yeah. And like, we didn't talk about anything specific. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like, hey, turn your dial here or make this number this. Like, it was more of just like a, like a, like a conversation about diabetes and life and, and what the things that people run into. And then they start making their decisions better. And then, then things start going better. Yes. Listen, I can't say it enough. About four or five times a year, a hospital approaches me and asks me to come out and give a talk to the people in the hospital who are teaching their people about diabetes. And yeah. every time it happens, I get super excited and it never actually comes to fruition. Oh, because it gets up the ladder just far enough. And someone goes, 
he's not a health professional. And the, and the person who had the idea of like, you, you don't understand. Like I, I listen to the guy's podcast and like, I'm in his Facebook group. There's like, you know, 50,000 people in there who are all living better because of the podcast. Like we should spread this around. They go, no, we're not going to do that. I've never once had it happen where I've actually been, in, I, I've ever made it to the institution. I've been asked to speak at the, um, what's that CDE convention? Is there the CDCES one? Yeah, they get all together, right? I've been approached about yeah. that three times. And then when I tell them what I want to talk about when I get there, they always say no. That's a shame. Yeah. And so this is just going to keep happening. Like, like nobody's going to, there's a lot of different reasons. One of them is I don't think anybody wants to be upstaged by a podcaster. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, like I, seriously, yeah. do, do, do you really want to yes. go to a professional like thing where there are thousands of people who have all gone to college the way you described and like all taken all this courses, done all this stuff. And do you really think that they want my ass up on the stage going, I don't know why you're saying it like that. You should try saying it like this because they, nobody wants to be embarrassed like that. So like, that's yeah. not going to happen. And trust me, that's like out of someone's mouth. I can't let you talk to those people that way. There'll be a revolt. Somebody told me if I let you tell them that they don't know what they're doing. So I'm like, but they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And their person was like, well, that's beside the point. And so there's the people you're going to and sitting down saying, okay, tell me what to do with myself. I think it's, it's kind of the difference, like the professionals, and I'm lumping them all into one basket. I should say that, you know, to their credit, a lot of the younger up and coming endocrinologists and healthcare professionals in general, night and day difference, right? In terms of how they approach care. Let, let me say before you go on, I don't, I'm not saying this is everybody. Right. But I'm, there are plenty of people getting fantastic leadership, skills taught to them constantly by people, but it's not nearly everybody. And it, I don't no. think it's, it's probably not one in three. So like, I'm not saying they're out there. Like, if you're listening, you're like, I do all that. You're an idiot. I'm like, well, okay, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the other people who aren't doing that. Right. The feedback I get is plentiful enough for me to say that a lot of people get poor direction from their healthcare providers. So yes. And it's a very slow rolling ball that's moving in the right direction. Right. And I think that the way it's differentiated from what I can kind of understand to simplify it as much as possible is the endocrinologist, in my experiences, basically does what they need to do to keep you alive. And then I step in and try to provide quality of life, right? So very much like you, you're educating people and you're giving advice almost to the same level as I would as a healthcare professional. But you're adding in the quality of life component because you're allowing people to absorb and understand the information. Mm -hmm. You're able to pull the information when you're ready to accept it. You're hearing it in a conversational tone. You have the ability to listen to it two or three times when something is a little bit more complex than you're used to or you haven't heard it before. Yeah. So, so there's all of that that is also available through what you're doing that is impossible to do in a healthcare setting. Jesus, am I the hope of this whole thing? Because <laughs> you may very oh well be. God, that's not good news for anybody. You and a limited few others, yeah. Well, no, I, not that I'm the, the only one, obviously, but I am the at this point in time. I'm the only one that has a mass voice. Yes, that can reach from California to Florida to Vermont to Canada to wherever else. I mean, the podcast is. I did. I looked at it the other day for something. It's it charts in like 45 countries. Yeah, it's global. But, yeah. Hey, do you know how hard it is to chart on Apple Podcasts in one place? It's not easy. So, like, yeah. you know, when you're doing it in over 40 countries, 
you know, people probably expect me to say, like, I must be really good at this. But that's not what I think. What I think is the information must be necessary. Yeah. And the guests that you have, the people who you get, like uh, every aspect of what you're doing is not easy. Right. So even if like, yeah, fine, maybe starting a podcast, fine, whatever, throwing it out there. Anybody could do that. But to get the people on that you have Mm -hmm. in the past is an impossible feat for many. There are like, there's just so many challenges, right? To what you're doing. And you are one of the only ones that I know of in North America, because I've been looking for lots of things over lots of years that has, you know, the amount of people and the really good, solid, applicable, easy to understand information provided. Right. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not just, you know, trying to blow smoke or anything. This is an honest opinion for me, which is why I'm having this conversation with you today, because otherwise I would have never seen the post that you were looking for people to talk to. Right. So it's important for me as well to try to reach as many people as I can in whatever way I can to try to first give them a break. Because a lot of people, first of all, dietitian already sets me off because people come in and they're going to think, oh, my God, she's going to tell me I can't eat this. I can't eat that. I can't do this. I can't do that. So they already don't want to talk to me. Mm -hmm. Right. Then they're coming into their diabetes doctor's office and they haven't been checking their blood sugars or their blood sugars are higher than where they're supposed to be or they haven't made the changes that were recommended last time or whatever. So they're walking in there thinking that all they're going to get is the finger wag, the judgment and you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. Before I can even say anything, people will say, oh, I'm, I'm eating terrible, all the wrong foods. It's all the... And I'm like, listen, I'm not the food police. Mm-hmm. I will provide you with information. I don't think there's any good, bad, right, wrong, whatever. Everything fits. It's just how you put it together, how often you're doing it, and how much of it you're having. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Oh, and yeah. so all of a sudden, like you... The way that you present the information, they look at me and it's like a deer in headlights, like, oh my God, light bulbs, light bulbs, bing bong, whatever. All of a sudden, everything makes sense. Yeah. And they're not being attacked and they don't feel like they've failed and they're not doing anything wrong. And they're, your, your blood sugar readings are not a report card and it's life changing. Yeah. No, you're right. It, it really is. Just to be like, like on the same level with the person that's helping you. Yeah not to be spoken down to is such a big part of all this. And for me to say, like, why didn't you make the adjustment that we talked about last time? And for them to say, well, I was afraid I was going to go low because I started exercising. And for me to say, totally get it. Let's talk about strategies to prevent that low from happening so that you can improve your blood sugars and still exercise and do what you like without feeling scared. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm feeling good about you being out in the world. I appreciate you doing this very much. Thank you. I also hope that one of the things the podcast does is creates more clinicians who think like you and talk like the podcast. So I think that's actually happening as well. You have like I can see data that other people can't see, but the um, amount of people that come into the private Facebook group who say in their intake form that their physician sent them there is crazy. Wow, that's awesome. Even to me. By the way, like I look at it, I'm like, huh, wow. Okay. That's cool. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Really great. But I mean, it's just, it's too slow. It is. That's the part that bothers me. And I heard you say it twice already. I have probably more reach with people who have diabetes than anyone else. And I'm not doing it fast enough. And that's the thing that burdens me. Like, I look at the downloads, I see the people, I see how many devices there are, and I'm like, it's great, it's a lot, it grows, 
but I think about all the people who would benefit from it. Like they don't have to listen to the whole podcast, but if you could just get like a pro tip series into their hands, you know what I mean? And it's just yep. so hard. It's so difficult to reach people. And, um, it, you know, it, it weighs on me. So, uh, well, you're one person who's done amazing things, who has changed. I have this conversation quite frequently of, with a person that I met through the whole looping network. Right. Mm-hmm. She often says a lot of the same. She's one person who had a child who developed type one, who, you know, motivated her into diving into this whole world of diabetes. And she has changed lives. Yeah. She doesn't see it that way. Well, she feels bad because she can't be there for everybody. She's gotten out. Like when I joined, it was probably like 1200 people. Mm -hmm. Now there's over 60,000 across the globe. And this is a 24 seven thing. Right. Yeah, You can't do it. And she's there. Like she used to reply to my messages within minutes, Mm -hmm. any time of day, three o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, whatever. And then she would apologize (laughs) if she took longer than a half an hour. That would burn you. That's going to burn you out pretty quickly. But in fairness, like that's a written thing through Facebook. I have a, my megaphone's pretty big. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no, at the moment, the way technology set up right now and the, the stars that have to align for me to be a person who says the thing that people understand in the way that you explained earlier. Yeah. Like I have the biggest megaphone. I still can't find all the people. Right. But you're one person. Yeah. But also, but my thing's not, it's not like I have to answer every person individually. Like that's what, that's the problem she's involved in is that like, if somebody asks her a question on Facebook, you have to have this one-on-one interaction with them. My interaction, I record one thing and then, countless people are able to hear it but i'm still Fine, not reaching enough of them you're also editing and you're also producing and you're yeah, also getting a lot going getting on. all the people together yeah, and yeah. you're also like that's the stuff that people don't see yeah. right no i mean it's and, it, yeah it's easy to say i'm making a podcast but the truth is if you followed me around for a week you'd be dizzy by the time it was yeah. over yeah so and it's time consuming and you are one person yeah. so if you can get you know, one podcast out a week or whatever. That's, that's impressive. Dude, I turn them out. I put five out a week. That's how I know, I but that's what I'm trying to say, right? Is that I don't think the audience, if that's how you feel and some of the feedback that I know that you've been getting, that you've been kind of posting about, which pisses me off, but anybody who doesn't understand, it's understandable that they don't understand it. Cause if they don't do it, it's like type one. If you're not in it, if you don't do it, you don't get it. Right. right, right. But the amount of work that it takes to pull together what you, what you're churning out is the average person could not do it. Like, just couldn't do it. I don't think you're wrong. I'll take that compliment and say thank you. Because, yeah, so yeah, you don't, don't feel right. that way because you're you're changing the world, my friend. You're very nice. Uh, I'd like to do it a little faster because I'm getting old. So <laughs> I'd also like to retire at some point. I don't know if that's uh, evident to anybody or not. Like, I'd like to, I'd like to be in a situation where I um I can relax <laughs> for five seconds. And yeah, so. yeah. And you deserve it, right? And that's the beauty of the podcasts and everything, because it's recorded and people can access it forever. Yeah, everyone deserves to be able to relax once in a while. But I've had a long life and a short amount of time, and I'm looking, yeah. I'm looking to do one more big thing for people and then kind of go my own way. But it's just, it doesn't feel like there's an end to it. That's that's the the bigger issue. Is that it just it feels like you can't you can't possibly stop because that that's the other problem with the way this is social media, like basically think about television my example always is somebody's already made a perfect television show but yet we make another one tomorrow because not everybody goes backwards to see something that's that's ended 
And so part of keeping this helping people is keeping it alive. Like you have to keep making content to bring people in. And it can't just be about diabetes. It has to be, it has to be entertaining. It has, there's so many little things that people would never understand. I'm sure there are other people out there with podcasts who are like, I don't understand why my podcast isn't popular. I could listen to it and tell you why it's not, but yeah, they're never going to figure it out on their own. Well, this is why I, I've never tried to do podcasts. <laughs> and even if somebody, even if you figured it out, there's no saying you could actually do it. Like, even if I said to you, it has to be more like this, or uh, also it has to be um, like real. Like, I'm not pretending to be something right now. Like, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, so, yeah, like, yeah I, I did an online thing the other night for World Diabetes Day. I did like a two hour talk on Zoom. There's like, great, a bunch of people showed up. And at the same time, I was like, I'm just going to throw my phone up here on the side and I'll live stream it on uh, Instagram. And it's just a two hour conversation about diabetes. I don't know if anybody will even find it, but I know if they did, they'd be better off at the end of it. Okay. So this is where that whole thing comes into play, where if you can save one person. Yeah, no, of course. Is it worth it? Of course. Yeah, of course it is. And I'm sure that you've probably saved hundreds. I mean, I must have three at this point. I think I got to have three. So I don't know. Well, um, you have enriched my life and you have motivated ways that you motivated me in ways to provide better care to people living with type one diabetes than you'll ever know. So there's that. I appreciate that very much. I'm going to stop on that because that makes me feel really nice. And um, I, I'd, like, I'd like to stop on feeling nice. So hold on one second. I don't know if we covered all the material you wanted to uh, we off in seven different branches of, of stories, no, but no, 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 you did fine. This was perfect. Thank you. A huge thanks to Omnipod, not just my longest sponsor, but my first one, Omnipod.com slash juicebox. If you love the podcast and you love tubeless insulin pumps, this link is for you, Omnipod.com slash juicebox. I'd like to thank AG1 for sponsoring this episode of the Juicebox podcast and remind you that with your first order, you're going to get a free welcome kit, five free travel packs, and a year's supply of vitamin D. That's at ag1.com slash juicebox. If you're looking for community around type 1 diabetes, check out the Juicebox Podcast private Facebook group, Juicebox Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes. But everybody is welcome. Type 1, type 2, gestational, loved ones, it doesn't matter to me. If you're impacted by diabetes and you're looking for support, comfort, or community, check out Juicebox Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes on Facebook. If you're not already subscribed or following in your favorite audio app, please take the time now to do that. It really helps the show. And get those automatic downloads set up so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juicebox Podcast. The episode you just heard was professionally edited by Wrong Way Recording. WrongWayRecording.com.